The intermediate line-off is a language and concept warning for the entire show. The opinions of the guests may not be shared by the opinions of the Intermediate Line podcast. The Intermediate Line is brought to you by NervousWater.com.au. Thomas and Thomas Fly Rods, Shilton Fly Reels and Colin Fly Line. Power Pole, Total Boat Control. Ketterfly Apparel, from time on the water to you. Beast Brushes, we stay in our lane of experience to improve your experience. Welcome back, listeners, to another exciting episode of the Intermediate Line podcast, Australia's original fly fishing podcast. <laughs> you forgot you, you, you pronounced best wrong. <laughs> yes, proudly Australian. Proudly anyway, Australian. G'day. What's happening, Chris? Not much, mate. Uh, I'm just chilling out, um, you know, just, just working, pretty much just working. Can I just leave that as a standard response for, for future shows? Pretty much just working. Pretty much just working, yeah. Look, I can certainly sympathise and empathise with that. That's uh, that's all I've been got going on, mate. Um, but it has been an exciting two weeks in uh, in fly fishing. Um, there's a fair bit going on. There's uh, people getting out. So the, the weather's improving. People getting out fishing. Um, I've seen says uh, you might have acquired some new tackle by the looks of things, buddy. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep, I did. I certainly yeah. did. And uh, hang on, hang on. Let's give let let's have give it a clue as well, to what on. it is. I heard I heard a, it sounded like Velcro real bag opening there. Uh-huh. Ah, okay, okay. Now it's sort of I can hear I can hear a, a triple dog. It's sort of reminiscent of a T ball, but sounds slightly more masculine. Could it be a? Uh, give it another spin. <laughs> it's not a it's not a velociraptor either. Talk to me dirty. It does sound like a gnarly dinosaur, you know? Like it's it's uh I, yeah. I end up um pulling the pulling the pin, uh pulling the trigger, fire, pulling the trigger and pressing fire. However you want to say, I'm just very excited, I'm tongue tied, but I end up getting myself yeah. a Shilton SR twelve, which is just a fucking weapon. Wow, oh, look at it. I'm, uh, if I seem distracted it's because uh I've got something bright and shiny in my hands. I know, I know those feelings, mate. Uh, the new reels feels, they're um, yeah. Listen to that. There's, I don't think there's a better sounding, uh, you know, incoming on on the market than that SR. Oh, yeah. man, they're they're super nice. It's um, 
Yeah, they're super nice, man. I'm uh, I'm I'm impressed. I'm um yeah, I'm very impressed for sure. Yeah, it's um, you know, I've I've got I've got one. I'm going to get more. You've you've got how many now of the uh, SRs? I have got uh, three SRs now. Um, yeah. So, look, it's uh yeah. I, I think I, I put it up on uh, Instagram and I said something along the lines of um, I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but um. You know, the, the, the Shield and SRs are, are redefining what, what I believe a real should be. And and by that, I guess I mean that, you know, my whole life, uh, well, not my whole life, my whole fly fishing career, the moment I got my first cork drag reel, I was into cork drags from there and uh, looked at them in all brands with uh, with interest. Um, yeah. And I, I really, I've got a couple of sealed drag reels, but, mate, I tell you, I can't really, I, I really... Really, really using the word real a lot when we're talking about reels. You're really over real. Really, I really don't. I really don't think that there's anything worth having other than a cork drag reel for anything that's gonna even take take drag a lot or a little. It just the idea of it being the maintenance on it. Um, you know the the way that the way that the drag starts and finishes and handles itself. It's just yeah, it's really nice. Um, but. I guess you know, like there's other reels that have got that, but I think the thing that sets that the, the Shilton apart, which again lends weight to re- redefining what I thought a reel should be, is just the strength of it. You know, like those those triple dogs, like you're saying, um, you know, just the way the frame the frame doesn't flex at all. It's huge. Like the the drag knobs, just easy to easy to work with. It's just the everything everything the porting, the way you can wash it down, like it's just just a great fucking incredible reel. They're really good. As as Keith Keith Rosinus said on our um on our potty when he came on like that that reel was designed for expedition anglers uh by expedition anglers like you know um uh you know say no more yeah it's just you know like there's been i'm not going to mention other reels names in regards to this um i'm sure you you like you know like you probably go to my page and see a lot of different cork dragger reels through the years that i'll fish up with but the um, some of them under load from big fish have, have flexed all the, all the spool grinds, you know, or something like that. But man, there is no way on God's green earth that that, that Shilton's ever gonna do that, you know. It's no. just it's just so strong, so strong. It reminds me of um, it reminds me of uh, like again, I'm not gonna mention other brand names, but the reels that work work sort of around in the, the 90s and 2000s and say, while. Function yeah. was sort of uh, ta- uh, you now overtaking form, if you like, but you know, um, and and there was plenty of reels back then like that, you know. So it's uh, even Shilton came out with that SL version. Um, I think the SR is a huge step up from the SL, that's for sure. Yeah, aesthetically and weight wise. Well, just the yeah. spool size, the diameter, like the retrieval rate, you know, all that sort of stuff as well. It's just, um, I tell you what, if uh, if Shilton ever came out with an, an SR six, I'd I'd be all over that as well. <laughs> Mate, I've been pestering them on their page and on the US page and in general page. SR7, <laughs> you know. But you need yeah. to start a fake profile so you can get some real traction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah some real, really real traction. Yeah, so. I, I yeah. load that up with um, Holocore too. Like, that's uh, that's the, that's the I got Holocore on all my reels now. And, I'm, mate, I'm, I'm really impressed with that too. Yeah, yeah. Run me through the benefits of that. You can you can make a, uh, a knotless surf connection, right? So. Yeah, that that's true. You can make a surf connection. They call it. Yeah, so it's uh, it's just um, it's like they do with wine on leaders and stuff. It's not not, not unique to fly fishing or yeah. or you know doing that. But you can marry your fly line to the reel if you like, I guess, which makes it 
come in and out of the the um the guides pretty seamlessly. Um, that's one that's one thing there, I guess you could say. But um, for me, the way it, way it winds in when you're guiding it back over your fingers, it's so much smoother. Um, uh, I, I think we explained it on one of the other podcasts and because it was fresh with how it was explained to me, but essentially compared to gel spun, uh, which is like, like a bandsaw as far as the way it's constructed, if you look under it like a, uh, a microscope or whatever, yeah. the, um, the hollow core is a, is a lot a lot more, a lot smoother, if you like, you know, it lays a lot Round flatter. profile and, and 16 pick, is it? Or 16 pick, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell yeah, you but, what, yeah. I'll tell you what, something that happened to me, like, um, you know, like, uh, remember that last time I fished with Rod, I came on the show and I explained about losing Tusk, Tuskzilla, right? Yeah, yep. Um, so when that fish ate, um, it went off the edge of the reef flat and took my fly line with it and all that sort of stuff, but my, my backing went around a coral head, right, under full pressure. It was just a full right angle. We had to go, we had to drive over it and take it off to then, then follow the fly line out into deeper water. Now... That if that was gel spun, you know, like I've I've lost a whole fly line before in the past. Like there's a time I caught a Mac tuna and I had 50 pounds fins on the back back then, and I I used to have a a Quintrex Hornet then. And I might have had some nicks on the chine. Um, anyway, my backing as the fly, as the fish changed direction and I tried to put my, drop my rod tip in the water under the boat, the backing hit the chine, and like a like a flick of a light switch, the whole fly line was gone. Oh. Right, so. If that happened, that coral head hit with that much pressure and it was gel spun, I have no doubt in my mind that I would have lost my whole fly line, you know, for sure with that. So the um, one of the benefits that they talk about with that 16-pick hollow core is is that abrasion resistance. Um, and I've heard, I don't know what goes on, but I've heard that in um, some southern parts of the states where they run it for, for tarpon and stuff, there's crab pots around and it's known that it can go, it can wrap around those crab pots without being a problem and... I don't know. I, that's one of the things I've heard about it, you know. But but in my experience, mate, they're, they're there. There's like yeah, right. Okay. A Bribe Island, mate. Everyone's trying to catch crab. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah right. It's just yeah. similar thing to that. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a, a lot of pluses, I guess, like that. You know, it's um, uh, yeah. It's, not, it's a knotless loop too, if you don't want to marry the fly line to it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, man. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. 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 yeah well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna put a um, I got a um, uh, the the liquid crystal um, clear floater coming with that too. Ah, yeah, yeah. It's been a bit of talk about clear floaters lately. Um, a few other people throwing their hats in the ring, but uh, Cortland were one of the originals. Liquid crystal. Um, yeah. Clear floaters, all clear floaters. Um, yeah. Tropical clear floater, yeah, all clear floater, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of the most enduring things about my trip to the States was we went into this tackle shop, right? And you know how you go into a fly shop, you know, well, most fly shops here in Australia might have, you know, one one of, of you know, a nine weight or one of a, you know, ten weight line of each type, you know, an intermediate or floating, like one, one on a peg, right? Yep. They had this, um, uh, they had like, I counted 60 um, liquid crystal lines. Like just peg after peg after peg. So like, say you got five, five of them, like five boxes on a peg. Hmm. There was twelve pegs. Like that's it. that's how many they were selling. It was incredible. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and they were super popular. And that was only in ten, eleven, and twelve way. So yeah, well, okay. Yeah, um, yeah the stealth. Saying something. Yeah, the stealth aspect of it was pretty, um, pretty good. 
Um, so yeah, they were, you know, the the guides there were sort of talking about it being, you know, relatively uh, well, allowed, allowed them to use a shorter leader uh, for one thing, which you know helped help their clients, you know, cast with more accuracy and precision. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's yeah. I've um, I've not been too much of a fan of the floating lines in the past. I used to use the monic lines. It's uh, and it really. I never really gave them that much of a chance. I, I mean, I was using them in the surf, and I couldn't see where they were and stuff like that. But I mean, it's um, I don't really use floating lines that much, I suppose. But um, um, yeah. But I just think that um, like I, I can just see myself using over things like over the top for for barra and stuff like that, like over the top of those weeds, like at Faust and and, and you know things like that, or um, yeah. you know, just a just a, a better flats line, you know, like uh, if you can see where your fly is, you know, um. <laughs> I guess that's really the thing, but I guess you got to really see the fish and all that sort of stuff. But you know, I could see how you know it would be a a, a great line for for fish like tarpon. That's for sure as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about togas? I didn't. I've actually had um, clear lines um, spook togas before in the past. Um, right. And, okay. and uh, look, I mean, to be fair, I really don't know if that was on the day or not. But um, it yeah. was always before they landed. It was like the flash of it in the air. You know, it was just a. Uh, Enough to spook the fish. Like the fish would spook before the fly line landed. You know? I hate that. Was that pre-spawn behavior, like around then? Uh, to yeah. And again, to be fair, you're you're probably you're probably right. You know, it probably was around about then because that's usually when you know in recent years you'd see them more often than not. Um, yeah. In in, my, in that particular lake for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Speaking of which, you're up there recently. Yeah. I've, uh, I. I <laughs> Of all the, the, I've only fished like three times this year. Twenty twenty three was the least I've fished as a human my whole life. You know, like uh, it, you know, it, it's just crazy. But um, I didn't want twenty twenty four to shape all of that. But I've only been out like three times all year, and twice for Toga, which has been fruitful, which is good. Um, so yeah, I have been, man. I, I, I the the first time I went out, I had to test some new new flatscraft product. Those uh, frog legs. Uh, I don't know if you saw that um deer frog that I caught that that Toga on, but uh. That was um that was a good a good way to 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 prove the product I guess you could say um, yeah proof um, of life good one yeah what, what's that mate it, proof of life it's it's always it's always a good good way to prove that your product actually catches fish so it's it's really mate it, like uh, look I, I want to I guess I'll just just as just a real quick thing in regards to that like it's um that's what all the stuff that um I manufacture or are involved with manufacturing kind of has to do you know i kind of wanted to at least swim at least be convincingly to swim um or even better have caught a fish before anyone sees it this um where we kind of get inundated by um stuff that people don't have the responsibility of proving before it but at least with flatscraft it's in it's important to me and i was really stoked to see that um that happened with that toga that's for sure and i've, I've given those frog legs out to um um a couple other dudes and I, and there's been some bass caught on them and stuff like that as well so they're nearly yep. ready to launch now, which is which is really good. But um, yeah, no. And the other day, I was I was I went up to Brumba, but didn't catch anything on frog legs. There it was all um, all on the sex leech, uh, big big flies. <laughs> yeah, you like yeah. that name? I don't know why. <laughs> well, it's just a, it's a cross between a sex dungeon and a, yeah, and, a, yeah, and, a, and a user's leech. Yeah, it it makes it makes sense. You know, <laughs> it's I mean, a terrible <laughs> name. <laughs> oh no! It, yeah, I. There's there's things I, I think in pictures right and and a sex leech is just not a good picture, so um, <laughs> yeah. No. When somebody says sex leech, I'm like, 
sort of gross, man. If you hey, weren't um, listening, listening carefully, you're likely to say, who are we talking about again, sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we all know someone seedy who could fit that description. Yeah. <laughs> We've all got that friend somewhere who, yeah, anyway. Hey, um, it looks, looking at background, man, it looks, I'm just looking at the picture now, it looks like one of those bloody hot still days up there. Oh, dude, it was hot as balls up there. It was so stupid hot. The water temperature was like 32, 33 degrees, and the air temperature was, I don't know, 100% humidity and, I don't know, mid-30s as well. You know, it was ridiculous. Ugh. It was disgusting. And, like, you can see there's not a, not a breath of wind. There's no aircon on. It's crazy. Um. I tell you what, though, like uh, you know, to give to give him a plug because I, I like it's super impressive. Um, Al's shirts, the Ketterfly apparel stuff. Like, I've, man, that's not the yeah. first time I fished in those conditions in in um you know in, in Queensland in in um well we're not summer anymore, but are we? No, yeah, no, no, yeah. Uh, very close to it. There's te- we, technically we are summer. summer still. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's there's days in it, you know, like it. it there's not much. Turn in four days. Yeah, it could turn into a technical, technically autumn, but you know what they they call these summers that hang around. They call them Indian summer. You know? Great for winemaking. I'm you for a wino, but yeah. Uh, I was a I was a sommelier in a in a in a previous life, man. So, <laughs> you were a sommelier, were you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which was uh, something that wasn't happening to me while I was at Barumba. It was uh, those. Yeah. I, was, <laughs> I was just about to show that, like, say that, like, although, like, you know, there was like, you know, it was stupid humid, no wind. Man, yeah. those shirts, mouths, man, they they just don't stick to you. You know, like they're um, they just yeah. wick all that sweat just comes off you, and it's just it's yeah. great. I've I've had so many fishing shirts, like particularly like back in the old days with Columbia shirts. Oh, I shouldn't mention the brand, but button up vented shirts. Yep. As, as re- as good as they are, and as better they were than um than a non vented shirt, they still like would um you'd kind of have to rely on them to sweat and stick to you to to to, to, to evaporate, you know, to cool it, you down. Yeah, it sort of felt like as the older the more generations that sort of came on with that particular range you just mentioned, like the fabrics got more and more cooler, you know, or, or you know transferred heat away from your body better. Um, yeah, so you know, feel like you're wearing a calico oh, sail. Yeah, yeah, the first one. Bad. And remember, they get wet. They're like, fucking heavy. But, yeah. you know, then you went to, like, I think one of the more recent ranges was at what they called Tamiami, and that, that was a definite improvement. But the, um, the the you know, the Caterfly ones are a step again, you know. Like, yeah. Uh, it's so damn comfortable. You know, if you don't want to be smelly air or, or based on your <laughs> your body out there, you know, or, or some other French word, um, you know, they're probably the, probably the way to go. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I, that day I ended up catching. Um, let me describe it for you like this: I I, <laughs> I hooked more than I have tattooed on me, but I landed less than I have tattooed on me. So it's a, uh, um, I don't know if you want to if you want to sort of get a mind's eye of that. You did say you're a visual person, right? Yeah, I, mean, I am a visual person. Look, I I'm yet I can't remember seeing like a, a Saratoga tattoo on you. Like, is there? Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> got any or is it just what you're listening to folks is an in joke from my friends who like to say that i've got carp tattooed on me but in fact i have uh i have four saratoga tattooed on me and and my my friends in particular like to hack on that people like to daydream about getting tattoos but can't pull the pin on getting them any get themselves any it's quite strange that people who actually like to participate in that seems to be all a real, real commonality there um <laughs> mind you yeah i i end up landing three and i dropped three um 
which was pretty good in those conditions. It was super quiet. Like it's uh, those fish are pretty wary in that lake. They're super pressured. So it was um, yeah. it was really really good going. But um, you know, I, I keep saying it, man. I attribute a lot of uh, getting closer to fish with that power pole motor. It's, fuck, it's quiet. It's just so yeah. quiet. Many times I got to look down and go, is it on? You know. <laughs> yeah, on those still days, that makes such a difference, eh? Hey? God, it's quiet, man. It's so quiet. That um. And I noticed something in that that day, like I was when I was trying, you know, going between spots or something like that. Like, um, um, being that still, um, that titanium shaft, it doesn't vibrate like the like that flexible Minkota one did. You know, like it, there was a certain amount of um, like you'd have to look at it, but you could see it, like it's it it's just vibrating under the water at, at when you start to get to sort of moving spot speed, if you like, you know, yeah. and uh, you know, I just, I, it was just something I noticed. It's just, it's just quiet all around. It's just a quieter motor. It's great. I, I'm, I, I'm, I can't see myself ever looking back. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I'm sort of, uh, I'm moved in that direction too. I think my next one will, my next electric, hopefully or not, won't be purchasing this, purchasing one soon. But if it is, I'm gonna have to look really carefully at those. I think they're, you know, despite, you know, they're probably worth the money. Is what I'm getting at. Hey, um. Oh, just on that, with the, on the money, like you, I think you'll find that the price of them, although that because they've only got that one, um, besides the scissor model and the pivot model, but they've yeah. only got one option as far as which is just the high end as it gets. When you compare to the to the like you know like the hundred pound thrust Minkota or the hundred pound thrust Garmin's and stuff, I think you'll find that power pole is actually more cost cost effective, but is 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 now proven with people's tests there, and like again. You can take this as my opinion, or you can research it yourself. But from what I understand, is that it's it's more quiet than those two, and it's got better features than those two. So it's um it's definitely worth considering. That's for sure. Yeah, it's no it's no small investment. It's definitely worth having a look at. I, I, I can attest to the the power and response and the um quietness of them. Just, they don't yeah. know getting spin, man. Yeah, no, look if, if you if you're gonna go compare a power pole move to a uh, to a, a water snake, you're yeah. gonna be shocked. But yeah, chalk yeah, and look, cheese as far as performance, though, you know. Yeah, I was I was talking to a guy up north who's running them. He seems pretty impressed too. So, oh yeah, or the yeah. power poles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is, yeah. is that Dave? Yeah, but I didn't want to put words in his mouth, you know. But yeah, he's, um... <laughs> okay. Sorry, well, I just said Dave. There's lots of Daves around, you know? yeah. Dave, Dave and Goliath, you know? Who knows? It could be anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, tonight's guest, mate. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, tonight's guest is is a uh, is a, only, uh, the word Australian fly fishing legends often overused, but this guy probably fits that by definition um, by by well description by by any level of definition. He's uh, Gordon Dunlop has has been there and done that locally abroad. Uh, he's well travelled. Uh, he's fished a lot of places. Travel broadens the mind. He's um, uh he was there right at the start for a lot of the a lot of um australian saltwater fly fishings you know big scenes um uh hopefully you know when we chat to him it'll it'll point a paint a, a you know very accurate picture um of of what he's done there but he he's, he seems uh really humble and understated in in his achievements and what he's done so um you know yeah having a Having a chat with him has is, is always been high on the agenda. I'm really stoked to bring him to you. This is this will be one of our, um, you know, I enjoy all, all our guests, but this this is really important. This one. Oh, I I, I agree. I was going to add to that as well and say exactly what you just said at the end there. This is this is really important. It's um, 
just like all forms of history, you know, like you, you, you're, um, you know, it's very important to understand the past. It's, I think, arguably, a lot of people would agree that uh, that Gordon is is definitely one of the forefathers, or uh, you know, was there right at the start of the beginning of the birth of saltwater fly fishing in Australia. I think he'll tell you that he's not wasn't the very first, but you know, for what for what he's achieved and what he's done and 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 the places he's been, there's no way we're going to cover it in one show. And um, I'm I'm I probably should have run this pasture on uh, off air vaults, but I pretty much, I'd like to invite him on for um for a part B, you know, if uh, part two, you know, that because uh, I don't think we're going to get through all this. You reckon that's a good? You're going to be a good idea. I got no problem with that. You know, like he um. Uh, you know, there's there's not too many Gordon Dunlops around, so you know de- definitely if, if he if he agrees to it, then then I, I endorse it 100%. Well, just like the best way to ask a chick to marry her, let's ask him in full front of heaps of people so he can't say no and um <laughs> <laughs> and guilt him into coming uh, back. But yeah. uh, look, like Gordon's a legend, man. I've uh, I've spoken to him a few times on the phone before this. Um, before this, I've never actually met Gordon face to face, but uh, he's um. I know he's motivated to. Uh, I know he's a big fan of, of modern fly fishing and those involved in it, you know. And it's um, and for yeah. someone who's been fly fishing for as long as he has, I find that very impressive because it's very easy for people to to lose touch with fishing and um and and lose touch with the actual act of fishing by being closed minded to, to advancements in it. And it's yeah. um, I think that um, I think that Gordon is is an inspirational man for what he's done, what he's still doing, um, and um. I don't want to expand on that. There's things I'd love to right now, but I hope that he does during the show, at least this one, or hopefully if he comes back on the next one, because the dude's a weapon. He really is. He's an amazing man. All right. Well, let's get him on. Let's do it. Welcome back, listeners, to a very special edition of the Intermediate Line podcast. We've got... um, We've got a very special guest with us today, um, and uh, he's very well known in the in Australian fly fishing circles. He's he's probably too humble to admit it, but he's been very influential in in a number of uh, number of fisheries and a number of ways in fly fishing in Australia. So, it's my great pleasure to introduce Gordon Dunlop. Welcome to the show, Gordon. Yeah. Um- and welcome to you too, uh, Jeff and Chris. Thank a you. pleasure to be here. Thanks, Gordon. We really appreciate you making it, mate. It's um, uh, I, in true intermediate line podcast fashion. I gave you very short notice, and uh, and um, <laughs> although we had talked about spoken about it um, in the past, but uh, to, to nail it down, I only gave you a couple of days notice. So really appreciate you making the time, mate. Oh, no, that, that's fine, and. Um, I love fly fishing. I love talking about it. So there you go. You were out yesterday, right? You went out um, out of Sydney yesterday fishing. Yeah, I, I did actually, uh, um, and for a change. And I know that you've had bad weather in in uh, Victoria, but uh, there was a clear weather window yesterday, and I went out chasing dolphin fish and private fads. Uh, you know where the riffraff don't, don't get to it because uh, there's a lot of <laughs> Love betas these days, but uh, I got access to a couple of private fads, and there were 30 k's off the coast, uh, which you know I had this fad all to myself all day long. Uh, I was fly fishing, and my buddy was, uh, you know, using normal tackle. 
Yeah, and okay. Didn't didn't get any ma massive dolphin fish, but up to a meter, uh, and they're great fun on on a ten weight. Mate, um, kind of leads me on to where we want to sort of head first, I suppose. Uh, you, when, you, when you're fishing off Sydney, um, Sydney's obviously not not a new fishery to you, um, but is Sydney where you would consider, given your experience in um, in how long you've been doing uh, saltwater fly fishing? Uh, I guess it's fair to call it saltwater fly fishing in particular. Uh, where it all started? Is this where saltwater fly fishing in Australia came from? Do you think? Um, yes, yes, and you know my introduction to that goes back a long way back in the seventies. I, I, you know, was a member of a of a sports fishing club, uh, and it, it was Sydney Sports Fishing Club, and you know it was a, an incredible club, very active members. And influential members, and you know the members were none other than Rod Harrison, Jack Erskine, a guy called Bill Fitch, a guy called Clyde Kelton, one of the early saltwater fly rodders in this country, Dick Lures, uh, and you know other guys such as Joe Gospel, and maybe a, a boating writer called Ron Calcutt. And, and uh, through that club is a way that. You know, I was introduced, if you like, to fly fishing because in my early days, I was a decky, if you like, you know, in my student days on a couple of boats. Um, and, uh, and, but then, you know, I saw, you know, because this club was so influential, they actually had two films uh, in black and white, believe it or not. This is I'm going back to the early 70s. Uh, and one of them was with Stu Apt on Tarpon on Fly. And the second one was uh, Doc Webb Robinson catching Marlin on Fly in the United States. And, and I went to myself, you know, having game fished at the time and I was doing everything. And like I said, I'd crewed on a, a couple of boats. One boat was called Gulfstream. The other one was uh, uh, a boat called Lady Margaret. And... Uh, and I thought, I need to do this. And coincidentally, at the time, the guy called Bill Fitch, who was a master, master custom rod builder of the day, as was Jack Erskine, they moved to Cairns. Both of them moved to Cairns and they set up a tackle shop. I think it was called Erskine and Fitch. And I don't know, it was a, the, the, the uh, how can I put it? There was a tackle shop there called Bransford's, you know, yep. from the, big game club and I think that they took over Bransford or was it in reverse? I can't remember. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but Bill gave me a fly rod because they were cleaning up the shop and, you know, not many people <laughs> were uh, buying 10 weight fly rods and he had one and uh, he gave it to me. And, uh, and that was the beginning for me, you know, um, uh, all of a sudden, uh, I didn't have a fly line, so I had some lead core, and I was casting with lead core. So that was, if you like, my introduction to fly, and uh, and uh, and that was it. But in those early days, let me tell you, fly gear was hard to get, and mm. uh, there was no internet. If I wanted a fly line, I actually had to type on a typewriter, you know, a fly line to scientific anglers or whoever it might be to try and get gear into this country because you just couldn't get that sort of gear here we definitely want to head head in that direction i got some notes to talk about that because i'd imagine that'd be some immense challenges with not only the tackle but the flight time but 
But to bring you back to the um, to the early days of of you know where it, where it's all happening with saltwater fly fishing, um, you you so you're saying that you know like uh, these these videos with, with I can't remember the other guy's name, Stu Apt with the tarpon, but the other guy with the marlin. Um, yeah, Doc Webb, Doc, Doc Webb, Webb right. Robinson, Doctor Webb Robinson. Right. Okay. I should. I'll write that down. Um, um, these are the, these. Are, they must have. I, I, I'm, I'm assuming. I don't know if you said it, but I, I remember you saying in previous conversation we had. But this is, you know, this was at a club meeting that you guys, you know, view these videos. What was the uh, what was the the general um, uh, mood in the room, or what was the general consensus for what people were watching? Were they generally blown away, or people like us? Oh, not for me. Was it something for you no. that just struck a chord with you, or? No, everybody. Something? I think everybody. I mean, for for Stuart, you know, to be casting to green logs which were tarpon in shallow water with a tiny little fly and you know and and even then the gear for for tarpon wasn't perfect if you like you know these guys are catching 150 180 plus pound tarpon on fly rods and mm. I, i'll never forget uh stew apt after hooking one of these things and it was all there you know, it was proper, it was a proper, uh, not a video, if you like, but proper black and white film. I remember mm. him sticking this stiffener inside the butt of his flower rod so he could actually put more pressure on the tarp as he had hooked. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and That's... and so that was, you know, that was my beginning, I suppose. I, I fell in love with that concept. But, and the club that I that I was there and with Rod Harrison, you know, for me, Rod Harrison, you know, uh, was, if you like, you know, the, the lefty cray of Australia in a sense, in inverted commas, mm. because he was the guy that was really doing it. And it was, you know, and I fished with Rod and he, he opened many, many doors for me. Uh, and dare I say another fishing buddy of mine, uh, uh, which was a guy, uh, which you you would know well, and that was Peter Morse, mm. because I didn't. There weren't too many people doing it, uh, doing fly fishing at the time. And in Sydney, you know, you know, I'd be casting in the park, and somebody would come up and say, "Oh, there's no flies here, mate," or whatever. You know, it was sort of almost ridiculous. And uh, fishing, fly fishing in those days, I'd be fishing Sydney Harbour, and I'd be the only fly fisherman there. You go mm. today, and you'd be surprised how many people, and there's, you know, here in Sydney now, there's people that charter, you know, uh, uh, you know, that do charter flies and, you know, you know, here and uh, just north of, of Sydney, which is, you know, Broken Bay or the Hawkesbury River that, and, uh, and so on. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So, um, you know, like let, after these videos that you guys would watch, I mean, like you, you said that, you know, Harrow was already, already doing it. Right. Was it was he um was he already involved in the saltwater fly fishing? Was it um Yeah, that that was his beginning also, I think, or maybe a little bit earlier than me. There was another guy called uh uh, uh Clyde Kelton and he had started it. So I I would put, you know, Rod Harrison, Clyde Kelton, a guy uh called Pearson up north, and there's another guy, and he was up in the Northern Territory, I think, and then there's another guy that was in West Aussie. And his name was Max Garth, oh, and yeah. uh, and you know, but there wasn't much written. I mean, it was really Rod that started writing about, 
you know, saltwater fly and and the opportunities that that uh, you know available to fly fishermen. And it was challenging, you know, if you've if you've caught everything on rod and reel, normal on game gear or spinning gear or bait casters, I think, you know, fly fishing became the the new challenge. And and in some cases, you know, particularly with fish like you know Australian salmon, you know, they're here, you know, in Sydney. Uh, and they're feeding on tiny, tiny bait, you know, uh, sometimes less than the length of a match, even half the length of a match. And you can throw any lure at them and you ain't going to get them. The only thing that will get them is a fly, right? Um, so, and that's where it was my beginning. It was salmon, you know, bonito, tailor, and, and there was a fantastic fishery just north of Sydney, uh, in the Hawkesbury, and there were you could set your clock by you know first full moon period in September. These schools of mac tuna would arrive inside the bays, and they're all you know a small one would be you know five kilos, but they went all the way up to nine kilos. But sadly, like you know, a lot of fishing, you know that that fishery uh, in Broken Bays disappeared. I have no idea why, um, but. And that, and my first serious fish on fly was a, a Mac tuna, about seven kilos, uh, you know, on a fly called a Platinum Blonde, I think developed by a guy called jo, uh, Joe Brooks in the US. Yeah, and, that, was, uh, that, was, that was my first tuna fly too, a Brooks, a Brooks Blonde. I was yeah, correct. Yep. I, didn't th I didn't think you were that old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Me too, but, actually. Uh, I, I um I think actually it mightn't have been my first one, but very early on I, I got a um I got a bunch of Macs on a uh, on a Brooks Blonde. Right, a quick question, segue. Um, we'll come back to what you're talking about. Uh, Brooks Blonde for for small for small bait. Did you go calf tail or bucktail? Uh, they're all bucktail. Yeah, right. All cool. bucktail. Yeah. yeah. All right. Keep going. Uh, yeah. So so and th 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 they were my early beginnings, and again I. I'm going back to the 70s, uh, and and the only guy here in Sydney, uh, uh, and it was you know an accidental meeting was with Peter Morse, and uh, and and you know late 70s, uh, you know we started fly fishing together, and we did a lot. You know we we you know we travel up and down the coast. Uh, uh, we did things, you know, up at Port Essington. Uh, you know, he caught Peter caught, and he would acknowledge this: his first kingfish, or first saltwater fly fish with me. And uh, you know, you know, it, I think it was New Year's Day or something like that. And um, he hooked one on a six or six weight fly rod, and he got a standing ovation from you know as he fought this fish between moored yachts. And I think that that single event, uh, he fell in love with saltwater fly, and and you know Peter's done an awful lot, and these days he's a casting instructor and he's fished much more than I have, um, uh, and and that's it. And you know what? If I can just do a segue onto that one, is that in the early days, you know saltwater fly gear was so hard to come by, and Peter and I started. Uh, um, if you like the, the um, how can I put it? Uh, not an online, but we started a, a, a fly company called Hackle and Tackle, 
right? And and the idea was was to actually get source materials here in Sydney uh, for fly fishing for saltwater fly, and thanks to Rod Harrison and others, we got lots of press in in uh, fishing world and and modern fishing and so on. And all of a sudden, the orders started coming through. But it was challenging. I mean, Peter, I kid you not, and I hope he doesn't challenge me, challenge me on this, but <clears throat> he would go, right, the two of us, I mean, I, I came up with molds for, you know, lead eyes for the clouses and stuff like that. And, and But Peter would go to poultry farms, right, knock on the door and said, oh, have you got any grizzly saddles? Have you got any long... Uh, saddle hackles and he would walk away from these poultry farms with a bunch of cocks dead cocks that had been gassed right they were dead and he'd load them up onto his uh, Toyota uh, van you know uh, 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 Hilux or whatever it was in those days and he would be skinning and getting these <laughs> hackles and then he would, we would, he would cover them with borax or, you know, a, 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 a product that you could buy from chemists in those days, and you know, to dry and and if you like preserve the the hackles, and and uh, that's what we'd be doing. And wow. uh, but you know, Peter wanted me to devote more and more time. I had a full time job, and I said, look, I, you know, I had a sort of a, a, a suit and tie job here in Sydney working for a newspaper and uh, and eventually he took that on himself but but, but again the, you know eventually I think it folded because you know unlike today I, I think that you know that there weren't too many saltwater fly guys then and uh, it's you know businesses are a matter of turnover and if you can't get the turnover you're not going to succeed so uh, but it, and it was a different no, generation a you know it was, you know, we had a little catalogue, which I've still got a copy of. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and it was, you know, fly tying materials wherever we could get them. Um, uh, we bought some reels from the US. Uh, we got some blanks. Uh, I think it was from Composite Developments. And there were, you know, and one of them was a flora called an S2, which is a blue rod and uh and it was you know seriously heavy heavy gear but at at the time you know you know traditional fly gear once we started catching the larger fish conventional yeah. fly rods just didn't do it and somebody like for example rod harrison came up with a rod and i think uh i don't know if it was a fenwick but it was if you like a steelhead blank and the name of this rod was an SH1024. And uh, and that's what we used. And I ended up catching marlin on that, wow. on that rod. And I ended up catching, uh, you know, catching all sorts of species, um, you know, on, on that rod. Because conventional, you know, if you get even today, you get a 10 weight or even a 12 weight and you ring it inside out. And on a set of scales like I used to, because I think I felt I needed to understand how much I was pulling when you're hooking a yellowfin tuna or whatever, uh, you know, you, you're, you're struggling to, to, to get, say, four kilos out of a, a 12-weight rod. You know, you 
try that for yourself and yep. see what the scale will tell you. And uh, when you're fighting big fish, you need, if you like, a, a rod with muscle sometimes to lift those fish, even if you're using, you know, eight, 10 kilo tippets. I mean, sometimes you need to redline fish because otherwise you ain't going to get them. Uh, mm. And uh, yeah, anyway, but uh, I hope I'm not digressing too much. <laughs> you're good, mate. This is, good. this is fascinating. Uh, Gordon. Like I've, I've really, this is exactly what we spoke about prior to like I, I really wanted to to hear all of all of this and um there's some topics we'll probably circle back on later um or, or <coughs> concepts more to the point but yeah mate I've, I've really enjoyed enjoyed it so far um just to just so that you um <coughs> i've just uh thought i'd pick up on something uh bransford's tackle is there's still a shop open in in cans called bransford's it's up on the, the northern beaches um it's now run by a guy called keith graham I think, yeah. I think he owns it, yeah. Um, and it's got a little, uh, it's got a little um, museum in there when you go in there. Like it's, uh, you know, like a fishing museum. Obviously, it's very centric on the Cairns Marlin scene. Um, yeah. But yeah, Ers Erskine's up there is shut now. Unfortunately, Robbie was running it. His son, Jack's son, was uh, running it for a while. But I don't know. It's been within the last fifteen it, years. It's closed. It's closed. It's, it's closed, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I've yeah. Been, I've been trying to guide people towards getting cow's grease, which is what I used to get from Erskine's when 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 he was still around. Um, but yeah, it lasts for so long, and I haven't got it for so long. But trying to find it anymore, I said just go to Erskine's tackling cans. They're not there anymore, sadly. Yeah, yeah they, I think that his wife, uh, Jack Erskine's wife, is still doing, or maybe even his son. And his son is the one that converted uh, my. Uh, Tibor Pacific into a lever drag um, and uh, lever drag <laughs> fly reel. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, tell, tell us more about that. Uh, yeah. You well, you, you know, with, with, with a lot of reels these days, you've got to turn, you know, the, the drag mechanism like half a dozen turns, you know, to, yeah. to get full drag, unless it happens to be the new generation Charlton's, and that's got a 360 degree one turn. But at any point, you know, you just don't know what your drag settings are. You know, well, you can certainly pull line up a reel and get a sense of it. And maybe I was a little bit obsessive about that because I sort of became an absolute, how can I put it? Uh, uh, I was fishing. There's one fish that I really wanted to fish, and that was yellowfin tuna. And I've caught a lot of them and big ones at that. And uh, I got busted off by a few of them and I needed to know where I was and that was the reason for it. On the other hand, you get, you know, you, you get somebody like Dean Buffon and, you know, him and, uh, and Tom Evans, I mean, what they've done is just unbelievable and they're using conventional reels without, you know, lever drag. So maybe I was, a, you know, you could argue that I was a bit on the obsessive side, but having fish game gear, right? Uh, you know, where you've got a preset drag, and I, I sort of wanted that on, on fly lines. I mean, I got popped off, you know, by big fish, uh, for, you know, uh, uh, mostly by water pressure and, and so on. And, and, you know, knowing exactly where you are uh, is, is, I think, very, very important, particularly mm. when fishing, you know, line classes. I mean, uh, I listened to a podcast from Dean 
Butler recently, and they lost something like 70 marlin, you know, uh, down south uh, because of, of gear failure or, you know, tackle failure, or rather, you know, the fish are too big and they're fishing, you know, six kilo or 12 pound test in the Olifa. Uh, and, you know, these fish take an awful lot of line and they do challenge. And that's why I went the lever drag. But, uh, and, you know, there's a few lever drags have been made recently uh, by none other than uh, Saracioni and a couple of other. Terry Hayden. Yeah, Terry yeah, Hayden. Terry Hayden. Yeah. Um, and and Terry, Terry even uh, fixed. I, I had a couple of issues with with uh, you know uh, the, with my lever drag, and I needed, if you like, a lever that that would not tangle fly line and i actually sent my reel to that guy you just mentioned and he yeah. actually fixed it to for me and he put an edge on the reel so that you know the lever drag at any point could not tangle if you like the fly line and uh, he did a, an edge if you like and i wish i could show you the reel uh but i can't <laughs> and uh yeah and uh, what happened to it is it not on, not in davy jones locker is it no, no, it's uh, with me. I oh, still, okay. I, you just can't I still, show us. I still use it. I even used it on Tarpon in the USA, and uh, and I've used it on yellowfin and other fish down here. Uh, but the fishing, you know, here in Sydney has changed as well. You know, yeah. I mean, like I said, the mac tuna disappeared, and in the old days, you know, for example, the time that I fished with um, with uh, Peter and Dean Butler off Sydney, I mean. You know, I didn't have a GPS. I'd just go out to the 120, 140 fathom line and start a cube trail. And guess what? Albacore and yellowfin would appear. I mean, I've fished some days where there'd be 40 yellowfin at the back of the boat. That's crazy. I, Pete, and, uh, Gordon, um, I, I really want to get back to that, but I just, yeah, yeah. Before, we, before we come off the, the, the lever drag stuff, I want to wanted to ask you a question in regards to, I mean, let me give it this another way. It's clear that that um, the drag pressure is is super important to you. You mentioned especially with fishing class tippets, and you mentioned IGFA in there as well. How how important do you think it is for anglers to learn to um, to fish within IGFA or um, or to challenge themselves to, to class tippets? Um, you know, if we tie that into with with the reel, that's so important to be working with that. But just I think it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that, given given your experience of all these years, to think that to you know to to maybe expand on that for people who are listening that maybe don't understand uh, the importance of it. Well, you know, with IGFA, you know, your your maximum tippet is ten kilos. Uh, people like you know Dean and and uh, Tom, I mean, they were using eight and six, and and you know it's really really important. And to the point that, you know, conventional fly lines, you end up to having to cut your fly lines, you know, for marlin, for example, you end up cutting uh, your fly lines to shorter distances. These days, you've got... The rear of it. You should, you should probably yeah, yeah, yeah. Rear, yep. Yeah, and, and you've got gel spun, you know. in Originally, for us, it was, you know, that the, the line of choice is Dacron or Micron, yep. right? And, uh, but, but... Yeah, so you know, and to to be completely honest, I mean, I, I my first marlin was on Igfa class, 
and that was in the early days you know with with rod but these days when i'm fishing for stride mile, i'm sometimes i'm just using gf AA, which allows you to to uh you know to to use 15 kilo tippet believe it or not uh yep. and and even a meter of trace uh but yeah, i'm sort of happy with that in the sense that that you know you end up catching a fish and letting it go maybe a little bit quicker than otherwise and a sort of the fish will release a little bit in in a healthier condition if you understand what i mean rather yeah. than uh but like, like like all fish you know some marlin are easy and some are not and uh, i've been stitched for five hours and 10 minutes on a blue over 200 <laughs> kilos and uh you know and i even fought a striped marlin for seven hours on fly wow. and uh and it was tail wrapped there's nothing i could do about it and uh but yeah so but you know so i suppose you know and, and for kingfish right you know yes I have, i've caught kingies on on light gear and so on but you know if you want to catch a big one i mean there's no other fish will dust you up quicker than you can say god save the queen or the king uh <laughs> and you know god save Camilla. in in uh, yeah in yeah. <laughs> in uh you know in reefy country you know they and uh, i'm not i i don't these days i like i said i i you know on on small fish you know uh, whether i'm fishing you know if i'm fishing for well, if I was fishing for milkfish, for example, like you, you don't use any more than eight kilos anyway because they they got big eyes and they're wary. Uh, the same with um, you know with permit and so on. So certain fish you're certainly fishing within your class limit, particularly on ten weight rods. Yep. But if you want the really big fish, and look, and all of my yellowfin were on regulation tackle, um, and and uh, and and regulation that is IGFA rated tackle yep. and uh and and uh you know and i've caught lots of them you know so, well um, i was just gonna say in relation to like that to, to sort of tie this in with back with the lever drag like a lot i think there's going to be some people that yeah they, they might be uh experienced with conventional gear but might be new to fly fishing and maybe haven't had the pleasure of of, of pinning marlin or any pelagics and stuff and they may not be understanding the um what you mentioned very early in this topic about the water pressure or the or the drag of the of the um I mean you started to talk about Dacron and Micron and compared to gel spun and cut and fly lines down. I think there's gonna be some people that might be not understanding of tying this all together. So um <clears throat> one would be explaining that but also um in relation to you know understanding where your drag is on your yeah. reel. Um and, and you know like uh which is obviously like the reason I brought this up it's obviously important to you to, to go to the point of um modifying a pacific you said right the, the t-ball pacific yeah yeah you modified yep to a lever drag it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a risky i mean it's not a cheap reel it's um you know it's a it's a it's kind of a can be could be a considered a bit of a risky conversion somewhat but um but you know it's, it's important to you and i guess it's um i guess i guess from a uh, an educational point of view for those listening that may not be aware um it'd be great to expand on that a little bit well you know with you know, and many, many fish, like I said, you know, without belaboring a point, I mean, the Dean Butlers and Tom, Tom Evans and Rod Harrison and, and many, many other anglers, Peter Morse, uh, you know, I, and guys are caught, you know, a, a great number of, of fish on fly and, and, you know, up and down the coast and even overseas, they've used conventional gears. But for me, I sort of, if you like, I'm, I was a little bit, 
fussy and at, at some point you know on any reel I, I dare you you know if you're fishing uh you know for rel relatively large fish is that <clears throat> at some point during a fight you might want to if you like release drag pressure or increase it but on conventional reels on fly reels that is whether it be you know uh you know uh, a, a mako a chart mako or even um <clears throat> you know a, a t-ball you know what whatever size you want um you know you just don't know where you're at you you have to check yourself if you like by pulling pressure off off the reel with a lever drag you know it and if you've got it set properly and it's got a preset right yeah you, you know you can actually number you know uh, at, at certain points what that pressure is and yes the the, the pressure does uh increase the less line there is on a reel without you changing uh without you changing um uh the drag set yeah yeah so yeah. But, you know, but it was, you know, it's not something that I live with. You know, I use Charlton's, I, I, you know, all sorts of reels, you know, some of the lighter reels like loops and stuff like that. And they're all conventional drag reels. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the lever drag is really more, if you like, you know, it's for, for kingfish uh, and and for tuna and so on. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not... You know, it's it's something that I did on the spur of the moment, and I wanted to. I've used the reel. I caught tarpon with it in in the US. I've uh, caught tuna of it. I've caught marlin off it, and it you know for me it works. It weighs a ton. Uh, it's heavy, uh, as as all T-Ball Pacifics are, and uh, yeah, and you know, and for me, and you know, there was a trend a while back less so, so today of having anti-reverse fly reels now i think that in fly fishing anti-reverse fly reels just don't work uh effectively enough because if you've got a direct drive fly reel when you won't wind the handle you're winding line with yep. anti-reverse because of water pressure and stuff like that all of a sudden the only way you, you can actually retrieve is to actually pinch the line with your left hand and then wind down and pinch your line. There are other times all you want to do is just wind. Mm. Yeah. If you the understand what I'm saying. Yeah, the direct drive gives you that tactile awareness of what's happening in the fight, you know, and, and you know, potentially saves your energy too because you know if you can and can't wind, whereas with an anti-reverse, like you said, if you're having some slip, temptation would be there when fatigue sets and just stand there and whine but all you're actually doing is is um you know potentially you know you're not aware of what's happening at the fish's end and also you're just tiring yourself out um yeah you know, co correct and and you and you're turning a handle and you're not getting line in <laughs> yeah yeah like, like you said you could be on a you could be on a marlin for five or seven hours or even more you know and um and you know just what you you're fatiguing yourself for later in the fight when you when you need it um and with that in mind, too, I had another question. I mean, you you would have been around, uh, you know, like you would have observed the uh, the the trend towards you know taller, perhaps narrower reels. Um, do you think that's been a uh, a significant advantage to to fighting fish in these long sort of uh, title fights? Um, yep. I mean, the old reels. You know, I caught my first mile and I sort of on a fin on number four. Right, mm -hmm. and th th those reels, you know, once you they, they're very 
they're small in diameter and they weren't, if you like, uh, the wider, you know, spool versions of it. And, and with the wider spool versions of it, you know, you certainly retrieve more line, right, uh, per turn. But at the same time, I mean, you get a smaller reel. One of the issues is the bigger, and I've got some huge reels. I've got, you know, the 9700 uh, uh, Mako, but it's easier to wind fast with us with a if you like with with a with a small reel if you understand what i'm saying because the circle uh, is is how can i put it the, the, the circle is smaller you can uh but the circumference you're actually moving your hand through a, a smaller distance C correct but but you know but i am in favor of the of the you know the the large arbor spools put yep. it the, that way i i definitely am did you, did you go down the the t-ball speed handle path at one stage or? yes yes and that's 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 a really good idea i think because like you just said you know the smaller the 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 turning circle is the quicker you can wind um yeah. but yeah yep yep, yep. but in the old days you know in the old days you know i caught those my first mile on you know a reel that was less than four and a half inches in diameter you know uh, and that was in cairns and uh and again courtesy of rod harrison and and uh, and i think peter and i were the fifth and sixth uh uh anglers to catch marlin on flying that was after after billy pate and laura pate um um you know got them and and that sort of blew the world apart you know um it, it well and truly did in terms of, you know, that they ended up being, you know, uh, the early days, uh, you know, being a major story in fishing worlds. Uh, when those two, I mean, they, they just, you know, all of a sudden it was just an incredible achievement from those two, you know, was, was, and Laura. Was this like a, a type of marlin? You mean like a, like a, a black or something like that? Or yeah, they were black marlin. Yeah, yep. black marlin, yep. and and. Uh, Billy Pate, and again, I hope I'm not digressing, but Billy Pate and Laura were the first ones to catch black marlin on fly. I was just um, tying in with that. With that, um, oh, I didn't write the name. I should have that that, that video you watched in the early days. You know, like uh, yeah, Doc that, Webb Robertson. So that that would have been uh, just a different species marlin, then, right? Yeah, I think there were striped marlin they were catching. Yep. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Was um, Billy. Billy Pate's Marlin, the first one, was that off uh, Cape Bowling Green, Townsville? Uh, no, it was off Cairns. Cairns, right, sure. Uh, yeah. my, my fish, uh, Peter's fish, uh, was uh, Cape Bowling Green. Right, yeah. Cape, yep. Cape Bowling Green. And, uh, and the fishing was amazing. But again, you know, we'd be trolling stupidly. We'd be trolling garfish, right? And uh, a little black would come up and just knock it over and split it in two in two seconds. And, uh, you know, the number of fish that we raised versus the number of fish that we landed um, was problematic because, because we're using, the, you know, baits that weren't hardy enough, if you know what I mean. Uh, we weren't trolling mullet or whatever or, or, you know, scads, you know, something a little bit tougher, if you like, that would withstand, you know, trolling garfish. I mean, a, you know, one little bill from a, from a black and that would be the end of it and obviously trolling baits without hooks you know mm. yeah yeah right 
Um, so, so Gordon, what about some, um, you know, like obviously you're fishing around Sydney and, and, and New South Wales is extensive. But, uh, you know, having spoken to you in the past, I know you fish a, a lot of diff- different areas. What are some of the more memorable places that you've fished? Well, in the, in the early days, I mean, Peter and I, you know, we did Port Essington, right? Um, <clears throat> and the only way you could get there is, is being dropped off by a commuter plane, not a commuter plane. I, how can I put this? Uh, a plane delivering supplies to an Aboriginal community at Port Essington. And where is, whereabouts is that? I don't know where it is. Uh, Port Essington was near Port Essington or Victoria was going to be what Darwin is now. Yes. But they, they changed their minds. It's on the other side. You know, it's not far from Darwin. Yep. And uh, we, uh, through Peter, we managed to have access. There was an organization called Winray Safaris way back when. And and uh, they organized us to be on this camp. And, uh, you know, Peter and I had to take all of our supplies there. And uh, we had access to you know, a 14-foot tinny with, or 12-foot tinny with a 15-horsepower engine. And uh, uh, the local rangers would deliver petrol to us. And, uh, and you know, we did that. And, my God, I mean, we traveled to these wrecks, you know, 20 k's away in a little tinny. And uh, both of us on fly only. Uh, and, uh, you know, fishing for you know, queenfish and GTs and all sorts of other species way back when. And so that that was my first one that I sort of did up in Queensland. And then Peter and I even camped in Kakadu, uh, you know, fishing for barra and stuff like that. And what, what, uh, just to sort of put a, what, what sort of time, what sort of year was this, Gordon? Uh, early 80s. Oh, yeah? Yep. <coughs> wow. Early early eighties and uh, but again and you know I wasn't doing it as much as as Rod Harrison and others up there mainly because I had a full time job so but we did you know you know we fished Southwest you know fished Southwest rocks coughs all the way you know I did a stint down in uh, in Townsville you know catch, catching barra at night and you know. Uh, uh, and like I said, Port Essington, and then and then uh, 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 Kakadu, and and other you know other places up and down the coast. You know, fish south down towards uh, Bermagui, you know, chasing yellowfin and stuff like that. But the fishing has absolutely changed up and down the coast. I mean, these days you've got rip charts, you've got all sorts of technology, you've got sounders. I mean, in the early days, I had paper sounders you know, black and white that I used to turn the paper the other way around. And that that was it. I mean, the technology today, and I think you need it, uh, you know, to actually go out there and catch catch fish. I mean, you've got one kilowatt transducers these days, uh, way back when, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't like that at all. So things have improved, but the fishing is is different. I mean, like I said, in the old days, you know, within, Ah, oh, I don't know, 50 meters of Baron Joe, I'd be trolling a lure and, you know, it could be a kingfish or it could be a yellowfin tuna, small yellowfin tuna. I mean, like I said, when I fished with Peter and uh, one day that I took Peter and uh, 
and uh, Dean Butler out uh, yellowfin fishing, uh, you know, they were just there. Uh, but in those days, you know, with 27 megahertz radio, all you could hear without, and I'm not a racist, without any disrespect, but all you could hear was Asian languages on the radio. They had 500 watt transmitters. And guess what? They were out there, you know, long lining. And, and there were times that I saw long lines out there. And, uh, and it was really sad. I mean, the, you know, the Japanese had enormous access to the east, you know, the east coast. And uh, talk to any old guy like me uh, up and down the coast, whether it be Port Stevens or whatever, and, you know, up and down. And, and there were longliners. And, and uh, you know, virtually these days is a sushi shop in every single corner. And when you can get $50,000, $60,000 for a fish, uh, one fish, you understand why, uh, you know, there were challenges. And I, I really think that yellowfin tuna there should be quotas on it these days much like there was you know for bluefin i mean bluefin without a doubt have made a comeback i mean you know in my lifetime i've only hooked one bluefin off sydney on fly and uh, it took 700 meters of line but oh, and, and now now uh they come they've made a comeback and i think that there needs to be um you know some sort of a quota, I think, on, on yellowfin. And a lot of people think that, you know, and some, you know, very knowledgeable anglers seem to think that yellowfin tuna move up and down like bluefin do. They don't. They're mostly east-west populations. And, you know, I was obsessive with my tuna. You know, I, I, I used to read these Canberra reports about yellowfin tuna and the best times to get them. And they're professional you know, fisheries reports. And, uh, you know, when you look at Bermagui, you know, the four mile, and there were miles and miles of fish caught there in Bermagui, well, a lot of those fish have disappeared. They're making a comeback, uh, but, you know, but they are east-west populations. So if you end up wiping out the fishery in one section, yes, they do move north and south a little bit, uh, but nothing like, you know, uh, yeah, nothing like bluefin tuna, that because you know they, they they're down in Tassie and and Victoria, and they make it all the way up to Sydney and back again. Mm. What well, what to expand on this a little bit? What what's what's the um what's the lowdown on the history of of yellowfin tuna fly in in Australia? You would have been right at the forefront of that, I'd imagine, right? Yeah, I was, uh, and for me, it happened you know again accidentally. Well, you know, I've certainly had caught. Uh, yellowfin tuna, you know, cubing, and in those days, cubing was a preferred way to do it. But one day, I was with a really lovely, lovely guy, and sadly, he died young. And his name was uh, David Lockwood. And I went fishing with him and his brother, and we're fishing, you know, not far, you know, fifty fathom line off off Sydney. And uh, the two brothers had had a heavy duty night, and they fell asleep on their boat and uh, and I'm at the back, I'm queuing. And all of a sudden this fish turned up at the back of the boat, like it was like an olive, you know, football of muscle with vivid yellow fins. And did I wake the two brothers up? No. <laughs> so, so, and <clears throat> anyway, I dropped a fly over the side and I could see this fish moving up and down, you know, just taking these cubes. 
Anyway, I dropped my fly and it was only a small deceiver and the fish disappeared in, in, in the glare and I thought, well, I better, you know, I'll, I'll strip. And I started one, two, three and I hooked up and I couldn't believe it. And all of a sudden I started yelling at two guys, you know, woke up. But guess what? I pulled, the, the, the fly pulled on, on that fish. But that was the first experience I had on, on a, on a, on a, you know, tuna on fly. And then after that, I became completely obsessive uh, with tuna. And I discovered, you know, that, that strange as it might seem, you know, a lot of, a lot of fish, including Spanish and others, you know, they often take, Spanish mackerel, that is, they often take a fly on the drop without any movement whatsoever. And <clears throat> the big tuna, virtually the ones that I've caught on fly, uh, virtually always take the fly on the drop. If you understand, you, yeah. you cast a fly, that, you know, the, the, the fly is sinking and they will pick it up on the drop. Uh, <clears throat> when you strip it, the only fish you're going to get, a small fish, let's say around the 20 kilo mark or whatever, for whatever reason. Mm. But the important thing that I learned then was that often I'd have tuna at the back of the boat and traditional fly lines less so today but they sink in a u if you understand what i mean oh yeah they weren't um density compensated they call correct and so i managed to get some density compensated lines uh from airflow but i hooked one big fish you know on yeah on uh, 10 kilo gear and the fly line broke uh (laughs) before my tippet did you know (laughs) yeah And uh, I've sort of ended up telling them, uh, you know, that they needed to do something because th- th- they had like a Kevlar core, but it wasn't woven Kevlar. It was like strands of Kevlar. Um, yeah, but, you know, and th- the day that I fished with Dean and Peter uh, for Yellowfin, I was using densely compensated lines and I landed two fish on the drop, Right. So you basically, when you're fishing for yellowfin, you basically have to imitate like, you know, the drift of a pilchard, if you like, mm. as it's drifting back. The only other time you're going to get a yellowfin, you're certainly not going to get one when it's being, the fly is being dragged down by the fly line. But gotcha. if you, and, and I even had twist-ons, I had little lead twist-ons that I would put on the fly to try and match, if you like, the, the, the sink rate of the line of, of, you know, so to, to have it equivalent, if you understand what I'm saying. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Right? So, so, so that as the drift is going down and the big yellowfin tuna, and my biggest yellowfin tuna uh, uh, was 43 kilos, but sadly it was, uh, you know, a little feisty little mako uh, nipped the tail and it would have been a world record way back when on eight. And... Uh, and, uh, yeah, eight, and, on eight kilo, on eight kilo, yeah. Wow. And and I fished, you know, I, I I did catch a lot of elephant tuna, and uh, and but going back, you know, to the even secret lines, you know, that day that I was with Morsi and Butler, right? I caught two yellowfin, and they didn't. And it wasn't that I'm a better angler than them uh, at all. The difference was even syncrate lines or density compensated lines and today i mean not many people uh you know 
fish for yellowfin, I don't think. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I'm not quite sure uh, if they do. Or, not they fish for yellowfin, but they, cubing, I think, has gone out of style. Yeah, but I think it's a very, if you want to catch one on fly, is you're going to struggle if you find a school of busting yellowfin. And, you know, they do get yellowfin on stick baits and poppers and stuff like that and other lures. But, you know, to catch one on fly, it's cubing, cubing. Mm. And and I can tell you, I have, you know, 40, 50 yellowfin tuna at the back of the boat, and it's a sight to see. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you're throwing a bunch of, of pilchards and uh, and they're all fighting for each other, just trying to eat them. And, you know, and it ain't that hard to uh, to get one in that that situation mm. either. But uh, yeah, anyway, uh, Look, um, did, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Like it's uh, it's interesting to to hear. Uh, I would imagine there would have been a lot of challenges. I mean. Gordon, before I go on to what I'm about to say there, I'm, um, I want to lead on to a, a, a different subject, but I mean, like, there is there is not enough time in a podcast to talk about even on that subject. We could keep expanding. Myself and Volt here, we're avid tuna fishermen ourselves. You know, we, 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 we've done a lot of it, uh, and I don't know, I, I can't really speak for Volts, but for myself, I haven't caught I haven't caught any yellowfin, you know, but I've caught, I've lost count with the amount of long-tail and mac tuna. Uh, uh, Long-tails are fantastic. But we're just we're, we're just blessed with lo location. We got a, a fantastic mm. tuna fishery where we where we live, you know. So it's uh it gives us a lot of time to um to learn and hone our techniques. Um, so there's a lot of there's some similarities with their behaviour, which I'll you know maybe expand on another time. But I wanted to direct the attention back to you know something you 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 probably didn't mean to make um make an impact with what you said, but you mentioned um you threw a deceiver at them, and I wanted to sort of ask you a question in regards to. Uh, the deceiver, but not the deceiver specifically, but just there would have been a time when the deceiver was invented, right? And um, and and I wonder if you had been fly fishing longer than the deceiver was invented, and and if and because I don't know when Lefty came out with that, but it's um, um, which is something I'd like to learn too, if you know. But uh, I, I'm interested at the impact it would have had if that's the case, if you you know you yeah. came into it during your fly fishing career. Well, look, in the early days, deceivers were without a doubt, uh, you know, the larger fly of choice. And, you know, people, anglers like Rod Harrison were tying them differently. You know, they, they, they had a, the way that he tied them had a broader profile. They were still skinny, if you understand what I mean, mm. uh, but they had more bucktail, if you like, on top and underneath, and they were still flat. But... The deceiver was certainly the fly. There's been, you know, uh, and Lefty is credited with the deceiver. There's been recent podcasts that challenge that, but I'm not oh. going to get into it. Uh, oh. I'm not going to get into it. And, you know, e even I had some influence on, on, on flies myself in terms of, you know, the development of, of if you like, the, the, the pilchard head or the cube fly or whatever. Hmm. Uh, but... Yeah, but in, in those days, I mean, you know, in the early days, I mean, the, you know, classes didn't even exist anyway, you know, it was mostly, you know, you know, platinum blonde style flies and, and deceivers. And, you know, there was, uh, Sal, you know, Don Blanton's Salmon Mac, uh, if you know that fly. Yep, yep. Um, and, and others, but, and, you know, poppers have always been around. Um, 
so so to get this straight, you're telling me that like you know you started fly fishing in the seventies, you're saying, and 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 those flies like the Brooks Blonde and the and and the Deceiver, whether it's left, you know, I I would have credit to Lefty, but I mean, let's say the left Lefty's Deceiver, that were that was already around, <clears throat> is what you're saying. So a Gartside Gurgler probably was was around as well, I'd imagine, um, you know, things like that, but. Is that is that true, right? As uh, uh, um, as far as saltwater flies are concerned, the deceiver's been there the whole time, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, it, it has. You know, okay. I've, caught, I've caught all sorts of fish on a deceiver. Uh, you know, GTs way back in Port Essington up up north, uh, and you know, I caught yellowfin on them. But I discovered, I think that there were other flies that have sort of that I sort of copied from. Uh, a guy called Bob Popovics, and Bob Popovics has, you know, come out with these three-dimensional flies, and they were wool, if you like, and they had like a, like a coating, uh, you know, um, like a synthetic coating over the top of them. And I started uh, simultaneously with a guy called Chris Wright, so tying those flies with eyes and so on, so that I was trying to imitate a pilchard, if you like, Right. So, and I, again, I, I sort of, I did that from the 80s and it was just like a deceiver, if you like. The closest comparison you would get to that would be some of the GT, you know, flies that people are using now. But in those days, right, I didn't have that, that, uh, that material you could, you know, spin around a hook. So I was actually tying wool, right? Uh, on the first part of the fly, and then I was shaping it, if you like, if you understand, mm -hmm. and then the back of it would be, you know, uh, would be, you know, just deceivers with a little bit of flash and and so on. And virtually all of my tuna flies all had a little bit of fluoro green in them. Uh, and I felt that they, you know, that that was a difference. I mean, that chartreuse type sort of color and, I, and i'd use a bit of bucktail if you like but mostly that the head of the fly with and i used to use those aluminium eyes you know what i'm talking about yep big eyes yeah yeah big eyes or i sort of do my C own you and, mean uh, eyes vaults you said right like there i think so it had eyes. like they were dumbbell aluminium dumbbells is that one yeah that yeah yep. yeah yep 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 and uh, otherwise i just stick stick them on uh another fly and again popovics you know he, he's a master guy when it comes to fly fishing i mean the you know you you know with the candy type flies and you know tied with epoxy and and there's newer materials now that that stuff that they've copied from dentists you know that you shine UV, the, light. the uv resin yeah it's just fantastic uh, yep. and I, uh and i think that came from dentistry that technology but i'm not sure yeah um but yeah, look, the, the, the flies were, yeah, and there was some synthetics early on. There's a guy called Chico Fernandez way back when. Um, uh, yeah, and the, actually, that he, yeah, he was using synthetics as well. And, uh, you know, and I became friends with Lefty Cray, courtesy of Broad Harrison and uh, Dean Butler. And I often pick him up at the airport and and so on. Actually, there were bendbacks, and I've, I've still got some of Lefty's flies. Um, and you know, the, and the way that he tied them also were not exactly the traditional way that you tie. And I'm going back to 
one you know, original question about what Flazo was using, the way that Lefty was tying these deceivers, you know, he he'd actually had like a grizzly, short grizzly feather either side and he would stick an iron. So, you know, some of his flies were, uh, you know, they were deceivers, but with a twist, if you like. And he actually wrote some articles that the eyes have it. So he'd paint an eye uh, on, on either side. I can't remember the type of feather that he used either side, but it was, you know, it's like a gray sort of motley thing and he'd stick an eye. He would, uh, on on this you know round roundish sort of feather either side. I know and, the eye uh, you're talking about. I can't think of the name of the bird either. It's uh, I think it's a partridge. it's a it's a type no it's a type of peacock, but it's not it's not like the it's um it's gray it's a gray with a with a brown sort of circle uh, iridescently brown circle in it that you would you know you you yeah I, I know I know it means people use it for squid flies as well like they they'll tie the <coughs> eye right down the bottom behind the um um behind yeah. the tube. You know, and, it's a, and he he would stick, he would paint an eye on it as well. So his flies were, you know, if you go back to some of the early saltwater books and you have a look at the flies, uh, the the way that he was tying them in the end was actually quite different. And uh, like I've just described, with big eyes and again that narrow profile and uh, super long saddles and and so on and you know that fly does have oh uh, that's what it is yeah. it's it's that bird's a gray peacock pheasant yes yes it is yep. <laughs> it yep. is yep. uh and uh yeah and i i have some of his flies that uh you know and i was fortunate enough i mean to get personal casting lessons from lefty i remember you know going back to lefty uh being at rush cutters bay here in sydney with rod harrison and peter morse and uh you know and the master teacher was lefty and in those days there weren't even rod harrison might attest to this maybe not that uh, there weren't too many people that <laughs> would cast you know harrison used to say couldn't work out how somebody with that weighed not much more than 60 kilos could cast as well as i did uh, but that was courtesy of, of Lefty. And I even, you know, in the early days, I also tested, you know, we've been talking about reels, but, you know, like, but also rods. And, you know, I, I got sent, and as was Peter Morse and I think maybe Rod Harrison, these rods there, and there were sage rods to test. Um, and there were 14 weights, right, to mm -hmm. test, uh, you know, because people started, you know, targeting larger and larger and larger fish. And I'm going back now to 70s and the 80s, right? And uh, and they came up with this rod. And one of them, and again, I remember putting a set of scales on it. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't pulling a lot. And the next iteration of that sage, and I don't think that Lefty had much to do with it, but it was a, like an eight and a half foot telegraph pole and that doesn't work either because uh you know you really need a rod to you know collapse you know you need a rod a heavy duty rod and i've got one which is my favorite rod of all time and it's caught quite a few world records not necessarily by me either is by peter morse and others in west aussie uh when peter went chasing yellowfin uh with craig radford i think it was another yep. great angler and uh yeah and and you know the the uh 
traditional tackle just was different. And you certainly don't want to fight a yellowfin or a large fish with, you know, an eight and a half foot, nine foot telegraph pole because that hurts you. You know, you need a, a rod that that it's got enough tip to cast a fly line but collapses under load so that you're fighting a fish with the shorter part of the rod. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah no, it's almost like do you understand what I'm trying to say? Is yeah, you, we talk about it on the show a bit actually in regards to like um yeah you yeah know, what you're what you're about to, to touch on without taking anything away with what you're about to say. But uh, yeah, I think most of our listeners will, will know what you're talking about for sure. Yeah, that leverage versus castability trade off when you're building designing a blank. Um, yeah, uh, and that's what this Kennedy Fisher and sadly, you know, I in my opinion they made the best uh, fighting rods and casting rods ever. And I've caught a lot of fish on that Kennedy Fisher and you know Peter Morse got a bluefin record on it. He got the yellowfin record on it. I don't lend it anymore because it's rare as, but I still use it. It's been done up by a guy called Tom Bamforth, uh, uh, TBC Rods, uh, and he's now working with uh, Ian Miller, um, if, you know, if you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, um, Gordon. Before we drift off on on the uh, you know the rod mechanics and that, I mean, uh, which is which is fascinating and I'd like to touch on it maybe in the future. But the one thing that occurred to me was you've you've met and and uh, fished with so many great and influential anglers, and many of them are, were overseas. Like you know, these days it's it's really easy to. Well, it must be a lot easier to get in contact with people just through like Instagram or, or any of the internet-based social medias or even email. Like, you know, back in the day, you know, and I'm a, I'm I'm mid forties. You know, Chris is you know a bit older in his fifties, and I'm not do, I'm not in my fifties yet. But, we'll be in a few weeks, though. But even we can remember times where Let's relax. you know you'd have a um, you'd have a tel a telephone. A, you know, was the only way or a handwritten letter, like. How did you get in contact with somebody on the other side of the world? Um, you know, in another time zone, like, you know, how did you know who they were, where they were, how to contact them, um, well, even how good they were? Well, look, I, you know, again, I used to try and subscribe to, uh, you know, in the early days, Fly Fishing Magazine. Uh, and then there was fly fishing salt waters and saltwater fly fishing, and there was even an equivalent here in Australia of that, but that didn't last long either. Uh, but it, you know, it was either by phone or by letter, you know, and I, I kid you not. Uh, and, you know, lefties to send me, you know, a small letter, and he was always very, very brief, um, um, you know. And he lived somewhere in Cockersville, like I no um, in the US. I have no idea where he was. Um, but yeah, it was it's just mostly, you know, either phone or um, or, or uh, you know, or, or um, and mostly by letter. Uh, but because of my contacts, and again, you know, uh, because of Harrison and and other contacts, you know, people like. I have a very, very good friend that I do a lot of fishing. Uh, his name is Neil Shepard, Doc Neil Shepard. And, you know, we did a lot of fishing together. We fished Florida. But through, you know, guys like, for example, Dave Bradley, right? 
Yeah. Now, Dave had access to, uh, had a friend who had a, a, a skiff over there and sort of like Neil and I and uh, and Dave, you know, we spent some time in the US chasing tarpon and so on in Apalachicola down um, and, and uh, yeah, it was true, but that was later. Um, that was later and communications, you know, later is a you know and now is a whole lot easier than it used to be and and it was only it was other you're right it was phone or a written letter um yep and you know i'd write to scientific anglers to the president of scientific anglers and, and i get a response a type response back from him uh saying oh thank you for your interest in uh, scientific anglers and uh and here's your fly line that you ordered you know but it would take bloody months to yep. do that uh, it really would but but again that you know the, and the you know i fish with harry spears i don't know if you know who he is yeah we've, um, had, we've had him on the podcast yeah and you know i fish with Hopefully him dave yeah he yep. he he took neil and i fishing for tarpon in in Apalachicola, which is towards where's that famous spot that everybody was trying to find out where it was? Uh, location X. Do you know where that? You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, we had the um the filmmaker Jamie Howard on the show not so long ago, and uh, we tried to get him to give up the spot, um, but we were we were uh, in that area, but he denied it. Ah, well, I fish location X. Uh, <laughs> Good one, Jamie. I hope you're listening. Uh, I fish location X and. Uh, and uh, we didn't catch any tarpon at location X either. But yeah, but uh, again, it was, you know, you know, contacts that I've made along my lifetime, you know, have helped me a lot. It's not all me, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a club there that, you know, it, you know, it, Peter and I in the early days, we idolized Rod Harrison. I mean, everything that he wrote, uh, and he had a direct, he was a first contact with, uh, you know, with Lefty and other uh, great anglers, uh, fly anglers in, in the world. And, and, you know, to be completely honest, Rod opened up a lot of doors for me and, yep. and you know, for Peter and others. And, uh, you know, through Rod, you know, I, I fish with Vic McChrystal, uh, if you know who I'm talking about. He died. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, he, everybody who ever fished with Nick or had anything to do with him is universally, um, you know, positive on their interactions with him and, and his his communication and, and knowledge. Um, and they always use the word gentleman. Yeah, and he was, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, Peter and I and Rod were fishing and Vic McChrystal is doing the rowing. There's no electric motors way back when. <laughs> like, uh, Vic, you know, this is God to us. You know, he, he used to have that article in in, in Fishing World. And, uh, yeah, and he wrote books. I still have one of those books that he wrote, you know, uh, on lures. Fishing and, uh, and cool. he, again, he was an absolute gentleman. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, with three guys, you know, Harrison included, you know, three guys in a boat and him rowing, uh, you know, wouldn't have been a particularly easy task because, you know, Rod Harrison weighs yeah. twice as much as I do. <laughs> like, he's a solid guy. 
<laughs> yeah, they say he's got a, he's uh, he's got a legal size barramundi tattooed on his bicep. Oh, oh wow! That's uh, <laughs> yes. that's, uh, that's, that's saying something about those those guns, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And big, you know, Rod did the, Rod also fished, you know, the Baja California with a bunch of others as well. Yeah, and guys even bigger than him, uh, you know, sort of one guy described Rod as a peanut, you know. Uh, or something like that because this guy was like six foot six and built like harrison uh but um and he had the what was his name uh he had the salt was it blue water fly fishing or something like that Trey was, hey, correct correct yeah got that book it's really interesting it's some good photographs yeah, yeah. was in there yeah did that just drop out I don't know. No, 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 no. I was just waiting for, for you to pull me into oh, line. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Trey Coombs, Blue Water Fly Fishing. It's a, it's a really good book. It's one of those books that takes you on a journey on a topic. Um, I don't mind the – I haven't got it back. I think it's – last time I saw it was in your study up there, but um, – <laughs> just joking, man. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good book. It's a really, really good um, – uh, um, yeah – I would say compendium, but you know, it it was obviously it had a lot of up to up to date when it was published. Um, opinions on on you know current reels and 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 trends and even hooks at that point in time. And um, Trey obviously influenced saltwater fly pretty heavily through those um, Gamakatsu hooks, the SL12S. Correct. Correct. It, yeah. And and all parts of tackle, you know, it's it's yeah, you know, really really important. And again, his was a you know a, a major step, and we all learnt. And you know, fly lines, the cause became the cause of fly lines became heavier, particularly if you're fishing with GTs. I yeah. doubt very much uh, people are fishing for GTs with uh, for gear these days. Uh, you know, they're, they're fishing with a hundred pound straight tippets all the way through. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, think, I, I think that'd be pretty hard, especially around some of the places they've got. If you've got to put the brakes on them, for sure, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, the, my source, you know, aside from magazines and and sending letters to the US, my source is books. You know, I, I was collecting books way back when. Whether it be Joe Brooks, Saltwater Fly Fishing, there's a yep. book you probably never heard of. Uh, you know, uh, by a guy called George X sand s-a-n-d and uh there were the early fly books and even earlier than lefty cray you know uh lefty cray's book uh and i've got one that's author you know orthographed by lefty uh but that the, there were you know lefty's you know bible came later than george x sand and brooks and others um but but they all you know sort of Every iteration is is you know a progression on 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 what's been done before and you know what's happening now with you guys and many you know like I said uh, uh, many anglers now and I, and there's some very very good saltwater fly anglers there that are quiet I mean uh, they, they're incredible yeah uh, they, it certainly is that's for sure hey um <coughs> Gordon. Just made me think about another potential direction. Um, you know, you were there at the start of, you know, I want to say the start of Aussie fly fishing. I mean, you've you've been humble enough to point to the origins pre, 
your involvement, but um, you know, you were able to observe it with with the movers and the shakers of the time. You know, what what sort of is there is there any similarities you observe between back then and and now? You know, in in Australian fly culture. Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm, I I don't know if I fucking stitch this up, but you know, Peter and I and uh, others uh, started a fly club, right? Called uh-huh. Sydney Flowers, and it's been going to going on now for virtually thirty years. And originally we had four hundred members. If you look up, if you go, and I hope I am answering your question, but you know, if I go to Melbourne, there's a fly club there. If you go to Port Stephens, there's a fly club there. There's one in Darwin. There's one in Cairns. There's, they are everywhere. And and I think that. You know, the difference is, I think, today is that, well, obviously, communication is a whole lot easier. You know, I can Google Chris Adams and uh, I get shown how to tie a particular fly. In my day, it was just a book, you know, or, or a magazine article, uh, you know, showing you how to do it. I mean, that I think that. Um, yeah, I think that it's easier today than it was in my time uh, yeah. for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, um, and I think that the gear is a whole lot better also. Uh, yeah. A whole lot better. I mean, the, the, the range of fly lines that, that you have is just, in, you know, is, is incredible and really decent core strengths and, and different tapers and so on. I mean, you know... You know, my old shooting heads used to be, you know, a, a double taper fly line cut in half or reduced to about, you know, 40 foot and uh, with, you know, running line behind it, you know, goody broad line yeah, yeah. behind it. Um, but I don't think I'm answering your question very well. Um, <laughs> the, uh, what do you mean specifically, Vols? What do you, what do you mean in, well, in regards well, I guess, to... I guess in, in terms of like... You know, back back then it would have felt new and exciting. You know, you're you're pushing boundaries, um, and you know, unlocking new species, new locations. Um, you you were literally the first, you know, in a lot of these places to be doing fly fishing. You know, it's not, you know, people of who are beginning today won't, you know, they'll struggle to have that privilege. You know what I mean? Like, although we're, I won't say we're unlocking new species. You you wonder what's next, but you know, like, um. And, and new locations, people are traveling. Obviously, we're better connected with the internet to, to find new places, uh, to find operations and logistics in, in different spots. So, you know, I, I guess what I'm, I'm saying is, was it, um, uh, are, are you seeing many similarities in, in you know, in what people are putting on social media or, or what's left of, of fly fishing media versus back then? Um. Well, I think that new generation are, are doing incredibly well. I mean, I find the new generation inspirational in terms of what they're doing now. I mean, I'm just staggered by it, uh, uh, whether it be your website, Chris, uh, and, and many others as well. Uh, but it, it was definitely tougher. I mean, there was nobody, you know, when I was fly fishing, I mean, there was nobody showing me how to do it. You know, I sort of virtually managed to get a, a book on how to fly cast, for example, right? And, you know, and my first fly line wasn't even, 
a flow line. It was lead core and it wasn't even LC, whatever it was, LC14 LC, or whatever. Yeah, it, mine was, yeah. yeah, mine was, you know, it was actually a trolling line, which I cut down to 30 foot. Uh, and I'm thinking, how the hell, like, huh. you know, do you cast this stuff, you know? And, and, and eventually I managed to get tough. A, yeah. It, and eventually I managed to get a flaw line and, and, you know, it, but yeah. And I basically taught myself to fly cast and, and I managed to get a couple of books and one of a book that I really, you know, underlined was Lefty Cray's book on fly casting. Right. And, uh, but I, and guess what? That there were all of a sudden. There's remember those beta videos, uh, <clears throat> the yep. videos you could get. And I mean, these days you don't have to do that. You know, just Google anything. So <clears throat> it is a whole lot easier today than it was for us in the old days. So believe me. And and it was trial and error. Uh, <clears throat> even tipping material. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, nobody used fluorocarbon in that. 80s or 70s, you know, mm. uh, uh, and it, it was certainly different. Uh, today, I think there's there's lots, you know, there you have, you know, you want to learn to fly cars, you just Google, you know, uh, what what's it called, narrow loops or is it tight loops or loops. sexy it? loops, sexy loops, and and, and <laughs> yeah, in in. Uh, I managed to get in the old days a couple of videos. Um, uh, one was from Lefty, and another one was from somebody else. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that's that's where I learned to fly cast. And then you know, and then having competitions with Peter Morse or, or you know, I remember the boat show. You know, Harrison, there'd always be a fly rod somewhere, and and uh, Harrison and I would be having a competition and. You know who could cast the furthest? Mm. You know this is in a boat show with a whole lot of people wondering what the hell we were doing. You know, um, um, but yeah. So no, it's it's. Uh, I think that we laid the foundations. I think in the early days, you know, for Definitely. people to do it in the future. And like I said, Sydney Florida's Club. You yeah. know that club that we started way back when, and the reason that we started it. You know, and, and there was Chris Wright, Peter Morse, myself, a guy called Paddy McGuinness, and there was uh, Ian Ryle, I think. We were the founding members. And and uh, the, that club, you know, like I, I'm repeating myself, we, we had 400 members in a short period of time and over yep. $25,000 in the kitty. You know, yeah. and that meant that we could actually pay, you know, uh, a Chris Adams to, to come over and... Give a you know a you know a, a you know a session on you know how to tie you know this particular deceiver fly or or, or rather a, you know a bend back fly which is different with all these glues and and so on. Um, you know, uh, in my day it was just books and magazines and whatever you could get a hold of and and I used to and every now and then there's other magazines like Sports Field and and um, outdoors american outdoors and there'd be the occasional the occasional uh, article by you know stew abdo whoever it might be and i used to have this paste book you know and i used to cut the, the articles and paste them and i'd sort of review them constantly um but that but that was it you know that mm. that's um you know i mean i, I think, think today it's a, 
yeah, it's a whole lot easier. But you know what's incredible now is 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 the clubs and the industry and and mm. uh, and people, you know, you, you know, you you know, much like you, Chris, you know, you're accessible. Uh, in my day, nothing was accessible. That's yeah. that's what I was just about to say. Access to information, but also access to results as well. I think is um is really important. I mean. I've not been fly fishing as long as you have, and observing the um, the ebb and flow of the sport in Australia, Gordon. But like in my time, I've witnessed um, two two lulls and one and and two highs, and we're still in a high right now. I would say, yeah. And I would argue that it's, um that it would probably uh, the longevity of it's here because of the access to results. You know, in those previous times, and you know those times where you're talking about the access to information and 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 hoping for an article in the back of a magazine. I've mentioned this on the show before, but I wonder if you'd agree that, like, you know, like, let's say you only had access, you liked fly fishing, you only had access to brim and flathead, you know, the mm. if you found them hard or and, or you, you're having trouble and stuff like that, it would be easy to give up and go, well, it's not possible on fly because you couldn't see anyone else doing it. And the only times we'd see fly fishing in Australia in, in like, you know, fishing world or something like that, super rare to see something in salt water, but not, un, not, not, not completely unseen, but it was mainly trout. You know, yeah. so the, but now you can, if you're into catching flathead or brim on fly, all you need to do is type in a hashtag brim on fly, and mate, you've got a, a plethora of, of, of people that are getting results, which would be motivating enough to go, okay, well, it's not the sport, it's me. What do I need yeah. to do to pursue this further and, 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 and develop my interest in it? Um, in, in addition to, like you said, the, the tackle, the options in the tackle, all that sort of carry on. But uh, I really think that, um, you know, this this access to information um, that is 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 what's probably going to see the sport, you know, continue. So, um, in some in some respects, in comparison to say what you know, forty years ago, you know, like you, you it, it was what you guys were doing was was incredible as far as uh, flying almost flying blind, but you know, forging your own pathway as such, and like having this communication of like minded people from around the world. Is incredible like just to, to have this common commonality of of, of, a, of a sport that's difficult for you guys to make contact with with one another it, it, like i would hate to think of the um of the of the number of people that are into fly fishing back then in relation to the world's population it'd be something like point zero 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 percent i would imagine yeah. and you guys all found each other it's it's incredible yeah no and, and it was and it was but the, the, again there were leaders that were doing it a lot you know like i said i, I had a full-time job but you know you know harrison was if you like in you know it was you know sydney's or australia's lefty cray he was out there doing it there were other guys so up north you know Rob, i mentioned them before ron pearson mark max garth clive kelton i mean max garth got a world record Spanish mackerel off a wharf on a yeah. on a deceiver, Canavan, right? Correct. Yep. Uh, on a deceiver uh, without wire, uh, and that fish is uh, I, I don't know twenty five kilos or something. You know, um, yeah, unbelievable, Un unbelievable. And so there were guys, and you know, Ron Pearson. You know, he didn't have access to to bloody, you know, beautiful saddle hackles, and he'd, he'd be using, uh, you know, any bird that he could shoot, <laughs> you know, yeah. whether it be goat. a cockatoo or whatever it might be, you know. Uh, goat uh, hair. Yeah, goat hair or whatever, you know. It's, it's uh, 
yeah, and, and they were catching fish and, and there's other guys as well. There used to be a casting club in Sydney. Uh, I can't remember what the name is. And one of the leaders, there was a guy called Bob Longley. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a couple of lessons from him way back when. It was, it was uh, uh, if you like, uh, uh, you know, a fly casting club, but more for for trout, you know, casting to to circles in, in a pond, if you understand mm. what I mean. And I went to this guy and I said, well, can you, you know, uh, I, your, my gear is twice as heavy as your six weight, but do you reckon you could try and sort me out? Uh, and he did, you know, I, that was one of the early things. But yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a whole lot easier today, uh, a whole lot easier. And you know, and like I said, the new generation of anglers, I mean, you know, blow me away. Um, you know, recently, I, you know, I ran into a guy recently, uh, and his name is Pat Nalon, and uh, I saw him fly fishing down off Port Stephens. I was there fishing for marlin, and I'm looking at this guy, and going, oh, my God, you know, he's, he's fly fishing. And uh, coincidentally, I ran into him at the boat ramp in Port Stephens and uh, yeah and then because of Google I googled him and stuff and and you know he's on Facebook and I went oh my god you know and we exchanged numbers and he ended up taking me Murray cod fishing and uh, if you see if you've seen uh, 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 you know fly life you know the latest edition I think of fly life or uh, there's a photo of Pat you know uh, Murray, with this enormous bloody Murray cod huge cod yeah. yeah anyway he took me there and I'm 70 he's you know late 30s he's just had a kid by the way mm. uh, is it oh it's yeah keep going sorry and, and uh, yeah he's just had a, a baby with his uh, wife and he took me there, and I'll tell you what, and I, I understood why he gets those sorts of fish, because we ended up climbing a ridge or a mountain, and there was no footpaths. I had snake protectors up to my the top of my knees. I had a 60-litre pack behind me and another pack in front of me, uh, which is a fishing gear, which is the most important part. We took everything with us. And, you know, the walking we could have followed the river which would have been difficult but you said to get to this place we got to climb this ridge and it wasn't a little ridge and uh yeah and he's doing that sort of stuff right and he's doing the salt water and uh and uh yeah and no oh, pat's everywhere he that that guy is everywhere it's just, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. One, one time he's, he's posting a picture of cod then then the next minute he's he's got a picture of a striped bass up or something like that and then and he's over in, in a, over in fishing trout or salmon in canada or something then he's back over in in, in um i don't know yeah he's wherever, gonna, you know xmouth or something like that you know he's moving he's moving he's everywhere <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know i promised him a, a marlin on fly and i'm trying to do that before he disappears um he's, uh, moving. he's moving away for after not long eh? yeah yep mm. and uh but i i'm gonna do my very best to uh get him a try and get him a striped marlin striped marlin are easy on fly i think uh <clears throat> you know if you find one i mean they they uh you know you occasionally get a cold fish but you know i've caught the last five striped marlin uh teased up i've caught 
Uh, uh, so, you know, my strike rate's five out of five, and there's no other fish that I love more than a striped marlin. They, they are just phenomenal. And, Pat, uh, and Pat, I want to get him one because he, you know, he worked deserving. really, really hard to, to get me a Murray cod. I'd never caught a Murray cod on fly. And, uh, and he, he worked really, really hard. And, uh, yeah, and he was an inspiration. I mean, just, and then I realized that, you know, the, the, the waters that are easy accessible, and I hope I'm not digressing, uh, uh, are not where you want to fish. If you want the big fish, you've got to go the extra yard. And people like Pat, you know, do that extra yard. And he's, he is, and you're right, you know, one moment, you know, photo of him with a Murray Cod, and the next moment he's got a large kingy or something like that, you know. And uh, and there are other guys who are tying fantastic flies, you know, up and down the coast as well. Uh, so, uh, yep. Mm. But uh, anyway, you yeah. pull me. Yep. No, you're, you're good, mate. No worries there. No worries there at all. Hey, uh, look, um, Gordon, we ran this past you. We want to let the listeners know if, you, if, if you're cool with it, like uh, we'd, we'd like it because we are at the end. This is a very long show for us right now to have, but um, which is fine. It's been great. In all sincerity, it's been awesome. And um, But we've got to wrap it up. Would you yeah. be interested in coming back for, for a yeah. part B? Yeah, and look, maybe, you know, I... There's a few fish that I haven't we haven't covered in this conversation that no that's that I, that's that they're, they're, like, you know like like milkfish for example I well, think that that's it. they are as iconic as tarpon are in the US and Full on, they're absolutely. just incredible totally uh, agree and uh, yeah and I think we dial those in um, and uh, yeah look I'll, I'll no. leave it up to you but thanks thanks no, for we'll, we'll handle the questions. That, there's heaps of stuff that we know that we didn't cover that's got to do with your 50 years 50 years span you said right that's how long you've been fly fishing for yep there's going to be there's so much mate there's so much we want to but like we, you know it was good to get your perspective on on these histories and um and uh and your experience like back in the day somewhat for sure but hard to cover everything so i think a part b is going to be it's the it's the only time we've ever done it we've had people come on a second time but um but not not like a part B like this. We'll just back this up for the next show if um, if you could make the time. That'd be great. Yeah, well, I'll leave it up to you guys, and thank you for having me. Oh, no uh, worries, Gordon. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Gordon. Okay. Take care. Peace All right, up. mate. Welcome back to the Fast Thinking Line, folks. And I'm here with your co-host, me, and my the main host, Voltsy. Hello. Welcome back. It was, it was awesome to hear from... Uh, Whoa, what's going on, mate? Why you sound so different? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Well, well uh, after that, that chat, I had to jump in the car. I'm on a bit of a mission right now. Getting some milk? Yeah, get some milk and some bread. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, right, okay. Oh, no, you sound all right, mate. It's fine. Yeah, sorry. Apologies if it gets bad, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think if we read between the lines with your apology there, you're, you're actually saying fuck you if you don't don't like it, right? Yeah, it was one of them token ones, you know? Yeah. 
well, <laughs> it is what it is. You know, you can you can eat the shit sandwich or you can just, yeah, go away. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think you've explained it in great detail, mate. We can move on. <laughs> That was a that was a great show from Gordo, mate. Like it's um, ah, uh, mate, it, it, it's it's just so much. It's so much. It's like uh, just so much. It is. It, there's a a clear. Here's the words chronology. Um, you know, like a timeline. Um, that uh about about what um. About you know the genesis of of saltwater fly here in Australia, the the characters, the you know the environment surrounding it, um, you know, and he draws some parallels with, with you know what we're seeing now, make some comparisons. Um, mm. Yeah, it's I'd, just I'd, such a privilege to have someone with that experience on, and you know, as a as a podcast, this was one of, one of our main aims was to was to catalogue, you know, a, a lot of the as much of this sort of stuff as we could. Yeah, totally agree. Um, stoked that he's he agreed to a um, a part B. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to part B. You know, it gives us a little bit of time to, you know, formulate some, um, some hopefully, you know, fitting questions uh, and really tap into his deep experience, which has been so generous with sharing to us. There's some stuff that, he, you know, we didn't really lead him towards discussing about that I've spoken to before on the phone in regards to, um, um, you know, the, the milkfish that he just about touched on there, you know, like, uh, you know, presenting... Um, free swimming milkfish with with worm flies and worm hatches and stuff like that. You know, it's um, um, yeah, some of the tarpon fishing he's done. Some of the like uh, the offshore of Sydney, like the the, the blue water of Sydney. The stuff is the guy is incredibly um, incredibly experienced with some of the uh, the fishing that he's done around the, the top end um, of Australia is incredible. I know he's got some pretty wild stories of um, of pushing into areas that you know didn't see a lot of tourists. Let's put it that way. So. Um, next week, I'd like to get into more of these epic stories with him as opposed to covering the history like we did with this one. Um, yeah. I'm sure that th- th- these stories will be, um, will be uh, you know, lightly dusted with um, some history lessons as well, I'm sure, but um, I'd really like to, to get some of these um, epic stories out of him as well next week. Yeah, yeah, same here. Uh, that, would be, that would be a good uh, finale, if you want a better word. You know? Yeah. Yeah, bring it all together with some, some cool stories and mouth-watering stories, fast fish, far away locations. Yep, uh, yep. about those yellowfin, man? Did that not want you to make you get out on the shelf? 43 kilogram, or I think it was 43 kilogram yellowfin tuna on a six kilo, uh, sorry, eight kilo tippet. That's wow. wild. Yeah, it is, eh? That's wild, man. Like, how do you lift a fish like that? Even if you're driving off it, like, how do you, how do you stop... The, the tipper from popping you know he must have his drag back what right off even that fish has just decided to go and i'm going to turn left with 300 yards of backing out yeah yeah you know, the, the drag of the fly line through the water would put would have way with the speed of a yellowfin would have way more drag way more pressure on it than i would have thought than than eight kilo yep yep Bloody the only way is, the only way you could relieve that is to feed it feed line out or let line run out you know to relieve the pressure of the drag so it's just uh anyway um if you know you know but um it's pretty wild man i've yep. seen i've seen uh people fish 16 pound for a long tail and, and they and like i just thought of myself even getting that that yellow fin around the boat and that's a that's a that's a 
that's a tuna that dwarfs any long tail I've ever seen caught for sure. And um, you know, getting those fish around the boat and um and handling them. Well, again, we're not gaffing them either, I suppose. But um, that's where those that's where those leaders pop. Yeah, yeah, they do. Those lunges, yeah. ever-ending circling. If you haven't got your boat position right. Well, either that or you've got Andy Vockler just reach down and try and grab the leader and take a wrap on it like he's in a game boat. I mean, I don't know if everyone fishes the Andy, but sometimes that's happened to me, you know? <laughs> let it go. Let it run, Andy. I got it. Well, it's running now, isn't it? Hey? <laughs> yeah, I might have anyway. done that way too once. Oh, I've done it too, mate. We've, we've yeah, all yeah. done it. It's um. discharge yeah, how, how spent they are, but, you know, I guess, I guess at the end of... Like, if, if you were fighting something, like, you know, Gordon was talking about marlin for seven hours, like, your fatigue sort of sets in, not only muscle fatigue, but, you know, mental fatigue. Um, y- yeah, yeah. Visions or you underestimate stuff or you hang on a bit too long and all that hard work disappears in a second. Well, it was tail wrapped, you know, and um, I didn't want to interject with my own experience. I can remember hooking a, a, a black off Fraser and I didn't realise at the time, but was Gavin Davis and it was it was foul hooked in the top of the head. It missed the um it missed the the fly and um like and uh and and it and it pinned on the top of the head. We thought it was legit eat and then not long into the fight Gav's gone it's not jumping. I've gone, yeah, right, okay. And um anyway, so we got it we got it close to the boat. It was just made it hurt. I, I was there with my ten way and I just I just wanted this thing to be over. It was just killing me, eh? And um because I I, I passed then. I've, I've always put twenty pound in the leader because in that circumstance, I wish I could have popped that leader. eh? you know, I really wish I could have just gone done. I'm done, you know, and just popped that leader. But because that thing was just buried in its head, we had to we had to get it in, and um, and we were reluctant to it. We probably could have got it. Probably we had the leader in the rod tip a couple of times, and we probably could have done it. But Gavin rightfully said, "I don't know how to handle this fish. Like if it jumps, like." If it if it, the fly was in its mouth, I could handle, it, I could steer it, but I don't know what to do when it's in its forehead. So we were really hesitant. We wanted it to be kind of gassed out like a, a lot when it came in. But I remember I was only on that thing for maybe maybe two hours, and mate, I was just I was screaming for mum. Like I was just I, it was hurt. It hurt me. eh? it was. Uh, I didn't want to be there. I was just think seven hours. That's wild. Yeah. That's Tough yeah. One. That's that's Tough like thing. a yeah, man. Seven seven hours uh, like. Unless, like, if, if you knew that was the part of the, the gig and, and, you know, like, it's, you know, uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's not it's not for me. Seven hours onto a fish just sounds horrible. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it's, um, but anyway, what, what, what are you going to do? A tarot fish, a fouled fish, I guess you can't really control where the hook finds uh, purchase, really, sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You yeah. Can find out too you know? yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah all right well look uh you nearly at the dojo then yeah mate yep i'll um, yeah. i will talk to you again very soon no doubt very soon mate no doubt all right all right man yep. you, you take it easy eh you too mate see you later all right, mate okay Bye. mate see ya Insufferable in fall.
levels Wait with their fingers crossed for you to break the rules Somebody always gotta turn in for for the man I wanna know, know right now Is there one of you in the crowd? Are you gonna call 911?
I'm in the 